production. Hello, it's Sarah. I wanted to let you know about my three new meditations I have made especially for you. If you follow the podcast, you'll know that meditation has been a big part of my life for a long time, so a lot of care has been taken in making these meditations extremely powerful. I've created a 20-minute manifestation meditation to allow you to bring your dreams into reality. Then I've created two 10-minute meditations, one for the morning to help you start your day vitalized and with a clear mind, then an evening meditation to help you have a calm and restful sleep. You can find these three meditations on my website at the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com. Marianne Williamson is an activist. She ran for the American presidency and is one of the world's most well-renowned spiritual teachers. But she is most well-known as one of the greatest teachers of love. Marianne says personal and public crisis are opportunities for new possibilities. They are lessons, though often difficult, in becoming who we need to be in order to make the changes that will heal our lives. Crises are portals, should we choose to step into them, to a life beyond the one we experience now. In our second conversation on a life of greatness, we discuss creating miracles, moving from fear to love, the Roe v. Wade abortion law, and facing challenges that confront us in a more meaningful way. The biblical line, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, means God saying, I handle that, not you. God is not a vengeful God. Things are balanced. So the law of cause and effect is not punishing. The law of cause and effect is simply the law that God, the Course of Miracles says, the universe was set up according to that law to protect you. If you put out love, love is what you will get back. That person will have to deal with what they did to you, just as you have to deal with what you did to others. God doesn't need your help in balancing the score. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Marianne Williamson is the author of many books, including A Return to Love, The Gift of Change, and A Year of Miracles. In its essence, this episode is about the importance of connection, weaving more meaning into your life, and believing in a force that's greater than ourselves. I adore Marianne, and meeting her face-to-face did not disappoint. She has been the teacher for so many of our greatest wisdom teachers. And after listening to this episode, you will understand why. I hope you enjoy it. Marianne Williamson, welcome back to A Life of Greatness for the second time. Thank you. Thank you. Can I tell you, when I was doing research for this interview, it is so much fun doing research for an interview with you because you are such an all-rounded person, so knowledgeable. You're a teacher of wisdom. So I thought I can just ask her any question that I want and we will be able to get such a wonderful answer. So thank you for joining me for a second time. Well, thank you. That's a little bit of pressure, Sarah. (laughs) I hope it'll at least be an interesting conversation we can have about whatever the question. Absolutely. I wanted to start by talking about forgiveness because forgiveness can obviously be a challenging thing for a lot of people and 
it also can be one of the most liberating things that we do once we reach that period that we are able to forgive. And a lot of the work that you do is from A Course in Miracles. And the, A Course in Miracles has a beautiful line. It says, forgiveness is the healing of the perception of separation. And I wondered if we could talk a bit about that. Yes. Well, traditionally, when we think of forgiveness, we think, I'm a spiritual person, you were a jerk, but I will deign to forgive you, which still sees, posits that you are separate from me, and it posits that I'm better than you. Forgiveness from a broader spiritual perspective means knowing that God created all of us innocent. We all go through moments when we aren't in conscious contact with our innocence. We're not in a place where we see how we can express our love and get our needs met. And in that moment, we do loveless things. Now, if I know that that's what happened to you in that moment when you you behaved lovelessly, lovelessly towards me. Forgiveness means my willingness to remember who you really are despite how you have behaved. My willingness to extend my perception beyond the level of your error, your personality, your behavior, to the truth of who you are, just remembering who you are. And instead of reacting to your lovelessness with my lovelessness responding from a place where I remember the truth of who you are. I choose not to fall into the miasma of your forgetfulness and your guilt. This not only reminds you who you are, but it also frees me from being at the effect of your guilt because I've chosen to see through it. Now, that doesn't mean we're necessarily going to have lunch today. It doesn't mean anything behavioral. It starts with consciousness so that even if then there is a boundary for me to draw, even if there is a line, even if there is a standard I must uphold, I do it from a different place. And that is the way forgiveness frees us both. Have you had to forgive a lot in your life and has it been difficult for you? In some cases, yes. Forgiveness is a process. It's not just a moment. I mean, sometimes we have those things where, you know, somebody says, oh, lighten up and get over it. We all have those things. And you realize, I I can just let that go, forgive that and move on. But then there are those things which trigger us on a deep level. But I will say this about the situations where I've had a difficult time forgiving. If I'm to be honest with myself, part of what I have to forgive in those situations is myself. I think of two things that come up for me, both of which took years to forgive. Um, The things that occurred could not have occurred had I been more conscious, Mm -hmm. had I been uh, more responsible regarding myself and my own affairs. I have found in situations where I have found it hard to forgive people that I made it easy for them in some way uh, to do what they did. Uh, I'm not a child. So the things I've had to forgive have not been from childhood where you can't talk about victims. But they were, I was adult. I was an adult in those cases. And um, I was ditzy about things that I should have been looking at. I was um, not careful about my personality um, and behaved in ways that I see how they could have been misread. I see how people could have taken advantage. So the Course in Miracles says, 
you pay a very high price for not taking 100% responsibility for your life experience. And the price is that you won't be able to change it. So let's say somebody did something to you and you're having a hard time forgiving. I'll notice sometimes, let's say if somebody's with me for counseling or something, they'll say, well, 90% of it was their stuff. And I'll say, well, then we need to discuss the 10% that was yours. Because until I deal with the part of me that created an opening for people to be able to do those things to me to begin with, then I will continue to attract people who do. Mm. And then you have to forgive yourself. So forgiveness of self, there is a uh, uh, process which both Christians and Jews talk about, the atonement. Mm. And from A Course in Miracles perspective, and also deeply from any religious perspective, you go back to the moment in which you made the mistake and you own it. You admit it. You know, uh, Christians, uh, Catholics go to confession. Jews, the holiest day of the year is Yom Kippur. Um, in Alcoholics Anonymous, you admit the exact nature of your wrongs. It's when you admit it, you go, yeah, I was this way or I was that way. And sometimes the fact that it had consequences that were painful is how you learn. I don't want to go through that again. I don't want anyone ever to be able to take uh, advantage of me that way. If I was the person I want to be, they wouldn't have even been in the room. If I was the person that I want to be, they would, I would have been looking over my own uh, financial uh, uh, situation. If I was the person that I want to be, they would, they, I would not have behaved in that way. So, so many times when we have a hard time forgiving others, there is an aspect of ourself to look at. You know, people get divorced and how could he have left me? Evolve and mature to what was my part in the yes. failure of that marriage and so forth. It's interesting because you bring up consciousness. And I think for me, when I started to become conscious of my actions or I even understood what that meant, I felt that that was even the first step into spirituality was just becoming conscious, conscious of my actions, conscious of my words, <clears throat> conscious of the way that I was behaving in the world. And as soon as I was that, I started to change all the things that I said, that I did it from love. And as soon as I started doing that, my life started changing in the most miraculous way. I started attracting wonderful people into my life, doors started opening, and the podcast came about because of the huge changes that came in my life and I wanted to teach others how to do the same thing. And I wonder how can we be more conscious in our everyday life so as thus we can draw things that we want to us? Well, let's not pretend we don't have a choice there. When you say, how can we? First of all, what you said was so important. The realization I'm responsible for my effect. Mm. That's the first thing you're saying. You, you, you are responsible for the energy you take into a room. You're responsible for when I was in an interaction with that person. Was I coming from a self-centered place trying to get something? Or was I coming from a place where I was considering the, the reality of the other person and their needs and wanting to be a space where they could show up at their best, wanting to give rather than just trying to get. Now, f- it begins, as you said, with realizing there is a law of cause and effect on, in- on the internal planes, just like on the external planes. What you put out comes back to you. So that's the first thing. You realized it. Like every, every thought I think, The Course in Miracles says all thought creates form on some level. The second thing is how do we do it? Well, Blaise Pascal, the French uh, philosopher centuries ago, said every problem in the world 
stems from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. For some people, it's a mindfulness practice. For some people, it's a spiritual practice. For some people, it's meditation. For some people, it's prayer. But it's whatever it is by which we hone our attitudinal muscles. The world is very loud right now. The world is very chaotic right now. The world is very filled with stress right now. And modernity itself is like an assault on the nervous system. Mm -hmm. If you wake up in the morning, the first thing you do is you go to Twitter, you go to email, you go to the newspaper, you go to Instagram. You're just assaulted by that. But if you wake up in the morning and know that just like you take a shower or a bath to wipe off yesterday's dirt, you meditate, you pray, you, you do whatever your practice is, to, to rid yourself, to purify your mind and your heart of yesterday's stress and the stress that's coming at you from all around the world. Some people, when you ask that question, how do we do it? Some people know very well what their practice is. And I think people who would listen to your podcast Many of them already know. And they're either doing it on a consistent basis or they are being reminded right now that if they did it more consistently, it would have a more positive effect. Or they're thinking, it sounds right, but I don't know what book or what practice would work for me. And to that person, I would say, just ask in your heart. And books will literally fall at your feet uh, over the next few days. The point is to know it's like physical exercise if you do it. It works. Mm. If you don't do it, it's not going to work. Yeah. I've heard you say a beautiful line. It comes from A Course in Miracles. Five minutes spent with the Holy Spirit in the morning will guarantee he is with you for the rest of the day. He is in charge of your thought forms yeah. throughout the day. That's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I mean, just knowing that would make you want to do it. Like, yet, if I just know that, I'm going into meditation in the morning. Well, but isn't it interesting how much we resist doing it? Isn't it interesting how much people will rush off and do all kinds of things when just a cultivation of quiet, the resistance we have to that should tell you everything you know about the power of the ego mind. It's interesting because I started meditating many years ago and it was one of the biggest transformations for me. I I, I always say this on the podcast, it took me a while to find the right meditation and when I did, it was transformational and I've done many different meditations, studied many different types of meditation, but it's such a beautiful way to kind of, as they say, when we're talking, we're praying to God and when we're silent, God is talking to us Mm -hmm. and I just, I love that. And I really believe that half of the aha moments I've had in my life have come when I'm in meditation. Yes, I'm I'm still having thought forms, but it's being able to hear them whilst the noise of the world is clouding them in everyday life and and having those moments that can be transformational for me, having an idea of even doing this podcast came from me meditating and having that idea within, within a meditation. But I think it's... It's such a wonderful thing to be able to just start the day away from the noise of the world and get into such a silent space. And I know that you're a big believer of prayer and prayer is a big part of my life as well. I get up in the morning and I heard, it was actually from Wayne Dyer, I heard him talk about the prayer of St. Francis many years ago and I thought, God, I really, that prayer resonated with me. So that's the prayer that I say in the morning and it's all about giving back. And then I go into meditation and then in the lying down part of my meditation, I say the prayer in the inner course of miracles, where will you have me go, what will you have me do, what will you have me say and to whom. And 
I just put it out there and I think, well, now, you know, God, the universe, whoever is listening, just allow me to be in tune with you and wherever you need to take me, I will be there. There is in both Christianity and Judaism the concept of the small, still voice for God. That, like you said, wherever I happen to be, may I be guided. Mm. May the thoughts that I think and the feelings I have, the energy I put out, be something that contributes to the movement of all living beings towards a greater good and happiness. And like you said earlier, it works when you work it. Yes. What are your prayers that you like to say in the morning and the evening? Well, I am a student of A Course in Miracles, so I keep uh, the course, the workbook, on my coffee table in my living room, and uh, it's always there to remind me in the morning, and my life is definitely better when I do it, um, and I do do it consistently, but one day not too long ago, I was feeling in a kind of bad mood, and I didn't know why, and I realized I'd, I hadn't done it that morning. You know, just preparing your nervous system, purifying it of all the, the stuff that we bring with us just living in the world today. I'm also a student of um, transcendental meditation. Yes. But I don't do TM regularly the way I do The Course in Miracles, but it's a very powerful form of meditation. There's one truth spoken in many different ways. Um, some people do Buddhist meditation, some people do uh, Kabbalistic meditation, some people do mystic uh, Christianity or Sufi, Muslim, whatever is true for them. You spoke about uh, the law of cause and effect, which I think is really interesting, and karma, as some people might know it, but it's the idea that if you are wronged, that something will come back to the other person in some form. But what I think is really interesting for people to hear and that they should hear is that we don't need to give the retribution to the person that may have wronged us and that it will be dealt with by a higher force. Can you talk to us a bit about that? The Course of Miracles says that the biblical line, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, means God saying, I handle that not you. Mm. And God does not, it is, God is not a vengeful God. Things are balanced. So when you said things will come back to the other person, the law of cause and effect is not punishing. Mm. The law of cause and effect is simply the, the, the law that God, the Course of Miracles says, the universe was set up according to that law to protect you. If you put out love, love is what you will get back. The point is that the universe has a perfect set of books, keeps a perfect set of books. That person will have to deal with what they did to you, just as you have to deal with what you did to others. God doesn't need your help mm -hmm. in balancing the score, right? God doesn't need that from you. Yeah. I think that's important for people to and know. And also for people to remember the, the fact that I forgive you, the fact that I sort of step aside, a kind of jiu-jitsu move, is doesn't mean I condone what you did. It means that I choose not to be at the effect of what you did. Mm -hmm. If I make myself your jailer, you know, as The Course of Miracles reminds us, the warden can't leave the prison any more than the, than the prisoner can. If I make what you did to me real in my perception, then the effects of what you did will be real. The Course in Miracles says that the truth of who you are was not created to be the effect of lovelessness yourself, from yourself or others. If you did something to me, I can remember not only that the real you didn't do it, because the real you is love, but the real me isn't affected by it. Mm. So I don't have to go through that back and forth. I can step aside, forgive you, move on with my life. You'll have to deal with your karma. It, I have nothing to do with that. Yes. Vengeance is mine, said the Lord. Yeah, that's so beautiful. 
And a topic that, of course, in Miracles speaks about a lot of different things, but it talks about miracles and the idea that, and this is my favourite, that a miracle is just a change in perception. And when I first read that in A Course in Miracles, I was like, oh my goodness, that is the most simplest but mind-blowing line I think I've ever heard because we could be in such a state where everything's getting us down and we're in our own thought forms of negativity and this and that. But then you have that change in perception, that moment where you're able to see things clearly again. And as it says, that is a miracle within itself. Everything is changed. Well, the realization is that consciousness or thought is the level of cause yeah. and everything that happens in life is the level of effect and as i said before every single thought creates form on some level we're not brought up to realize how powerful thought is we're taught that money is powerful things are powerful government is powerful business is powerful technology is powerful as Martin Luther King said, we have a power within us more powerful than the power of bullets. Mm. We, in the 21st century, there's a growing, revel uh, really, revelation and, and revolution of thought, which is the realization that the, every thought you think, you know, are you going to bless that person or are you going to blame that person? Are you going to judge that person? Are you going to forgive that person? The point being not the effect it's going to have on them, but the effect it's going to have on you. Mm. Because if you bless that person, you're blessing yourself. It all has to do with the realization that on the level of spirit, there's only one of us here. There's a line in The Course in Miracles where it says, when you're about to judge someone or attack someone, just even in your thinking, imagine that a, that a sword is falling down on their head, but now be clear, it's not falling on their head, it's falling on yours, mm. right? So the only way I can be reminded of my innocence is if I'm open to remembering yours. And all of that is on the level of thought. You know, we all know that what we do is important, but there's a growing realization, not just that what you do is important, but what you think is important. And people subconsciously know everything. If I walk into a room and I'm just kind of thinking real judgmental, selfish thoughts about it, I can be polite, how are you? But it doesn't carry the same energy yeah. as if I blasted the room with love before I came in, and I really am intending to just be here with love, the, to show up as best I can, it feels different. And the Course in Miracles says people hear you on the level that you speak. Yes. It's really interesting, obviously, talking about all this stuff and you having run for the American presidency a few years ago because, as we know, politics can be one of the most loveless areas. Yeah. I mean, I was telling you before we <laughs> started today... That that I uh, had done a podcast with our treasurer and, I mean, that was beautiful, but even being in that realm was so different to doing a Life of Greatness podcast where I speak with someone like yourself and we're all talking about these beautiful things. And I wonder for you, being such a person of love and knowing everything you do and being so conscious, how did you find being in that space? Brutal. Painful in terms of the toxicity that government, establishment, media forces, all of those. But actually being with voters and talking mm. to audiences, it was exhilarating. You were at my talk in um, Melbourne the yes. other night. 
the same, that's, that's who voters are. Yeah. You're talking to people, and if you come in talking uh, about things on a meaningful level, people will hear it on a meaningful level. So the experience was sort of half brutality of dealing with the way the system mm-hmm. operates and half exhilaration dealing with people. But I think that there's a real problem with the fact that so many people over the last few years, coming from philosophical, spiritual, religious spaces of love and forgiveness, have looked at politics and said, ugh, it's so toxic, I don't want to have anything to do with it. So then they go into this, or there's a temptation, a tendency to go into this real apolitical space. But let's look at what that means. If you leave it to only people who aren't carrying love in their hearts, as their primary concern, then it's only going to get more toxic. Mm. And that's what has happened. And I think people are beginning to realize that what we used this kind of faux spiritual excuse for not showing up to contribute to an area that desperately needs us to be there. I've said for years, people who are into spirituality and higher consciousness are the last people who should be sitting out the great political and economic and social questions of our day. Because if you have a you have a, a cue, you have a clue what it is that changes a heart. You're the one who knows how to change the mm. world because all the world is is a collection of people. So I, what I see at home and what I assume is happening here as well is a melding, is people who are in the more spiritual and personal growth realms knowing I, I, I can't stay out of this. It's too important. I can't honor my incarnation. I can't honor my responsibilities as just a being on the planet, particularly if I'm in a de- democratic society, and look away. And I think people, what I see is that people in the more uh, political realms realize there's more to it than just surface change of policy. Mm. I also see something very interesting in younger generations. Um, when I speak at colleges and universities, I always say those are the people who were raised by mothers who read the kinds of books that yes, <laughs> I and others yes. write. So I find with younger people, there's not a resistance to a more whole person, holistic conversation about changing the world. They know, they know that it's external issues of policy change, but they also are open to conversations about the psychological and emotional and spiritual changes we have to make and how those worlds aren't separate. It's body, mind, and spirit with which we um, integratively heal the body, and it's also body, mind, and spirit with which we will integratively heal. I mean, you've been a teacher for many years, but then obviously running for the presidency and then having to deal with the media. I, I work at a huge media company. I've worked within media for over a decade, and it is such an interesting thing to see how it's evolved. And it can be your best friend, it can make you, and it can also break you. And I wonder, from your experience, seeing salacious headlines as the way they draw people in, I mean, that really beautiful journalism that we used to see, unfortunately, there is a need for it, but we don't see it as much as we used to, not because it's not there and there aren't the people to be able to write it, because people like the Daily Mails of the world and things like that. How are we able to use the media in a good way rather than it be so controlling of anyone's move who's in the public eye? I don't know what's happening in Australia, but in the United States, there's a growing realisation that because of the corporatization of the mainstream media, because it is profit-driven rather than 
great journalism driven. Yes. Some of the most important things now are in independent media sources. Mm. Um, the kinds of things that used to get a journalist a Pulitzer Prize uh, now gets a journalist fired. Uh, if the journalist says, I'm going to write an article about the, um, the spewing of carcinogens from that factory downriver, it used to be that the the journalist might get an award for that, but today it's too often the case that the same larger company that owns the newspaper also owns that factory. Mm. So people are waking up to how um, how skewed uh, so much of our mainstream media is in the United States. But simultaneously, there's this huge growth spurt and interest in independent media. People realize that if I really want to hear the scoop, um, looking just to these huge corporate sources that are making money off what they tell us um, is not the way to go. And I also think people realize the terrible damage that that has done, that so much of our journalism doesn't have to do with really presenting people the truth, but with presenting people whatever will get them riled up to, you know, to give the click or to, to uh, raise the ratings. That has had a terribly deleterious effect on my society and um, um, it's part of the problems because the free press should be about uh, uplifting and educating people mm. not numbing and misinforming people obviously recently in the states we saw uh, everything that happened with the abortion decision and seeing that from afar is just so <clears throat> it it's just bizarre to see in this day and age and what I'd like you to explain is the thinking that that could happen from the Supreme Court is based on, is it religion? I mean, no, what, what, what is it's, it? It's what's going on here? unfortunately a neo-fascist tendency. Um, the world has seen before and the world has seen in other places when demagogic authoritarian figures uh, gain political ascendance. Um, when people such as that uh, existed in the United States before, our democracy flushed them out. But what happened in the last few years was that a genuinely malevolent political figure um, was not above stoking uh, the worst aspects of the American character. I'd say the human character. You know, Americans are no different than anyone else. He was not above stoking anger. He was not above stoking um, racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, really horrible um, uh, energies. And that emerged at the same time as social media's um, uh, ability to give anyone a megaphone. And so it was kind of a perfect storm, including our electoral college. So it's been a perfect storm. Yeah. And the uh, former president, to which I just referred, was able to appoint three uh, Supreme Court justices during his time as president, which is very rare. But that's the way it happened, and he um, appointed people who are in line with a, with a corporatist agenda, um, whatever corporations want, uh, as opposed to humanitarian values coming first. And um, I, I, I don't think it's hyperbole to say a neo-fascist tendency. This idea that while the, the rest of the world is... is or certainly the rest of the democratic societies are moving in the direction of expanding uh, democratic rights and that we would be constricting them is 
horrifying. But remember, it's horrifying to the majority of Americans. The majority of Americans did not want to overturn Roe v. Wade. This is why this is such a crisis in our country, a perspective that is not only politically regressive, socially regressive, uh, economically regressive, that represents a minority of Americans has gained outsized power in our country. Um, I said a little prayer for us because we're going through a difficult time. I just want you to explain to me, and maybe I don't know enough information about it, so I thought you would be a good person to talk to. In what kind of thinking would it be okay for a mother to die if their baby was going to be born. Like, I don't, I don't, am I missing something here? You are, you are horrified the way millions of Americans are horrified. It's, it's done it. You know, Margaret Atwood, who wrote, uh, she said, I meant that book as a warning, not as an instruction manual. No, it's terrible. And the, the implications for the future are so dystopian. What are you going to do? A woman is, trying to get to a state where abortion is legal and now they're making these laws in some of these states where she she can't travel. So what are you going to do? Make a woman take a pregnancy test when she's about to leave the state? What are we talking about here? They're talking about criminalizing uh, even uh, an Uber or a Lyft driver. If you heard a woman even discussing abortion and you didn't turn her in, this is, this is, no, people can't even believe it, but it's happening. And, um, we, but we're, you know, we're not going to, this is, this is not the end of the story. Uh, and we have midterm elections uh, in November. Uh, we'll have another presidential election in 2024. But it's, it's not going to be easy to route this stuff out. I mean, it's um, uh, people who hold these positions are on city councils. They are in state legislatures. They are uh, in our Congress. They are running for federal office. Um, we... But I, I want to go back to something that I think is important because I think this relates to what you and I were talking about before. When we were talking about how even if people do something to you, you have mm. to look at your part. Franklin Roosevelt, our president during World War II and during our Depression, said we would never have to worry about a fascist takeover as long as democracy delivered on its promises. Over the last 40 years, our democracy has not delivered on its promises. Look at your universal health care here. Yeah. You were talking about social, socialized medicine. I, sp- I spoke to a man here whose father is kept alive on a $30,000 drug mm. that is covered by universal health care here. You were talking about what you had to pay to go to college here, which was almost negligible. It's not even something where you can remember the specifics. Yeah. In other words, the powers of government support you in having health care. Mm. The powers of government support you in, in having an education. I, I mentioned to you before that when I first came to Australia, um, and, and I first came in the 1990s, and it was, the feeling was, oh, this is like America, but 10 years behind. Now being in Australia, it feels like this is America, but 10 years ahead. You're, 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 th- you're thriving as a society in ways that right now we're not. Now, I believe in my country, and I love my country, and I think that we will emerge from this. We're down, but like people, you know, strong people fall, and then they get back up. And we're going to get back up. I believe that with all my heart. Because I know that the majority of Americans don't want this. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, it's a process. It's, it's not going to happen overnight. But we do have to take responsibility for the fact that if so many millions of people had not left 
been left desperate, then they would not have been as susceptible to the societal dysfunctions uh, represented by this kind of neo-fascism. And um, we have to reckon with all that. We have to reckon with all that. How do you think it gets to a point where there are these people and groups in the world, may it be neo-Nazis or whoever, where they're so angry you're the teacher of love. You're the best teacher of love. How how does the love leave the heart like that? What is that? Pain, yeah. fear. Uh, people who have seen jobs and factories taken out of their communities. Their kids don't have good schools. They don't have health care. Uh, they see. There. You know. You and I were talking before we came on about how you don't feel the huge gap in, mm. in wealth inequality. I mean, you have your billionaires, you have your rich people, yes. you're a capitalist society, but you, there's not this huge gap like we have, wealth yeah. inequality in the United States. There's been, over the last 40 years, such a massive transfer of wealth into a, the hands of a tiny few. So you have a tiny few who are just making out like bandits in America, and if you're in that club, listen, I've been very fortunate in my life. You know, I've sold books and had a real access to privilege. So I understand how for those who are sort of in the club, it's a great place to live. The problem in America today is not enough people can get into the club. It's like, I was reading a book once that said, it's like if all the blood in the body was in one arm. Mm. Blood has to circulate. Opportunity has to circulate. Economic opportunity has to circulate. Social economic uh, uh, social opportunity has to circulate. Education has to circulate. When you only have a tiny few who are really able to afford whatever health care they need, only a tiny few can easily afford a good education. When uh, not every American is even getting a quality education, then uh, of course people are angry. And in 2016, there were two candidates who were validating people's rage, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. Mm. And so there was either going to be a, 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 um, a, a authoritarian uh, populist who was validating people's rage, and then there was a progressive populist who was validating people's rage. And that was running as a Democrat. That was Bernie Sanders. And it was the Democratic establishment that suppressed him. So today, it's the real, if people really know what's going on, they know the real issue is not left versus right. It's real democracy versus this kind of corporate control uh, of our government, which places short-term profit maximization for corporations before the humanitarian values mm. of security and safety and well-being of our citizens and of our planet and of the world to the extent to which it's affected by American policy. I mean, obviously, you just mentioned a few things being in Australia, seeing how we run, and by, we are by no means perfect, yeah, I can I'm tell sure you, you that. you have your own issues here. But I wonder, what would you look at here? I know you mentioned the health care. Would there be anything else that you would look at as a... Well, a, definitely your health, your, your health care and your education. Yeah. That the people have an easier, easier time. Uh, health care is a huge issue. It's so much at the core of people's um, not only financial, but mm -hmm. psychological and emotional and physical despair um, uh, in the United States. Um, the guns we were talking about. Uh, the guns, well. absolutely. Yeah. The guns. The guns. Thank you for mentioning that. Um, 
We have a Second Amendment, which I do support. I don't have a problem with the fact that the government can't have all the guns. That, that's, that's part of our Bill of Rights, and I think that we can, uh, most Americans respect that. But that should not mean that anyone could just have an access uh, to an assault weapon. It's outrageous that an 18-year-old could have access to an AR-15 without... It's, it's um, so yes, that would be the issue. You had a massacre here, and your government came in and took care of it. And that's what we should do as well. We should have an assault weapons ban. And um, people should be able to have guns, but they should have to, there should be proof, there should be evidence that that person is of sound mind, that that person um, has passed the kinds of tests that are necessary to prove that they behave responsibly with a gun. Um, that they know what to do with it. Um, easy access to guns in America is scandalously dangerous. We were talking about fear being the thing that takes away love. And it, I mean, we have been living in a lot of fear recently. Well, we're always living in some sort of fear, I find, especially as we spoke about with the media, but COVID really hit a lot of people, most people, very hard. And I wonder... In those moments of such fear, how, how does the mind find that miracle and choose again and, and find love? Well, you know, if you have any kind of a spiritual or religious perspective, um, let's say you're a Christian, you know there is a crucifixion that precedes the resurrection. If you are Jewish and you uh, understand the story of Passover, you understand that the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt before the journey to the promised land. All the great religious systems speak of the fact that there is a counterforce to God's love, but that ultimately, you know, that's the three days in, uh, in Christianity between the crucifixion and the resurrection. In Judaism, there is the 40 years between slavery and the deliverance of the promised land. This three days, this 40 years are symbols for the time it takes. Um, even when you look at what you and I have been discussing about the United States, whether it's the fact that we do not have health care, uh, universal health care, whether it's the fact that we do not have easier access to educate, fine education, whether it's the fact that people have such easy access to guns, none of those things would be true if deeply humanitarian values had been dominating the domestic policies of our government over the last 40 years. We have to take responsibility for that. And our seeing that means, I believe, that we would move immediately into what you know Franklin Roosevelt said uh, during the Great Depression when he became president in 1932. He said, I, I've come to realize we must be fairly radical for a generation. Um, we, we are like a ship that is listing so far to the side that in order to move back uh, to a level playing field, I would say immediately cancel those college loans, immediately um, uh, make it easier, make you know, free uh, or very, very cheap uh, tuition at col uh, uh, state colleges and universities, immediately uh, provide for universal health care. Because when you ask, how do you return to love? Love is not just something you say, it's something you do. So if a child is hungry, love means you feed the child. If a child is going to a school as millions of American children are, where they don't even have the adequate school supplies to teach a child to read. If a child cannot learn to read by the age of eight, the chances of high school graduation are drastically decreased and the chances of incarceration are drastically increased. What does love mean? 
teach that child. So love, uh, enough with just the talk about love. You and I were talking before about the actual thoughts behind it and the actual policies. So when you're talking in political terms, if a person is hungry, you feed them. If a person is desperate, you seek to ameliorate the desperate conditions. Uh, Martin Luther King said, any religion that ports to, purports to care about the soul of a man but doesn't address the economic conditions that are strangling him and the social conditions that burden him is a moribund religion awaiting burial. This, all this love stuff has got to be more than just talk. It's got to be what we do for our fellow human beings. Yeah. And that brings me on to wanting to talk quite a bit about connection, which I think the importance of connection and we have one another and I, I, there's that beautiful quote that I always love hearing from Ramdas that we're all here to walk each other home. And I think that's so pertinent because I think we believe it's just me. You're very separate from me, Marianne. It's me and my world and I've got my family, but then you, you're separate and you've got yours. But it's, it's not like that. No, it's not. And, and that issue of separation is the primary problem of the world the false belief that we are separate from each other, the false belief that I can do something to you and it won't come back to me, the false belief. If you see the state of the world today, uh, nuclear, n nuclear powers are and nuclear weaponry uh, specifically is certainly an example. It's a, and, and climate change is an example. This is a threat. These things are threats to all of us. It's not like the climate cha a challenge is staying within nation state borders. It's not like if a, if a nuclear bomb went off not in Australia, if it's close enough to you, it's going to be a problem for Australia. Yeah. So, um, I think that more as we evolve further in our consciousness in the 21st century, we are st thinking more in terms of we than me. And many people, even in the, in the so-called spiritual and psychotherapeutic community, have actually contributed to this, this atomized perspective, my pain. It's not only just only what I get, it's my pain, my trauma. What, well, people talk about they have an anxiety disorder. Everybody has an anxiety disorder. Look at the world today. I'm traumatized. The world is traumatized. So I think that all of us have to evolved to the realization that many of the things that are causing us such sorrow and despair are not just individual circumstances, but circumstances that are due to collective dynamics and collective behavioral patterns. And, and that changes you when you realize that because you're not just addressing your own little issues. You realize that addressing the bigger issues, you know, there's no amount of money that you and I could make in our lives that could protect our children from the horrors that will explode on this planet if things don't go well. Yeah. I, I don't care how much money or power you have, You're, you want your children to be able to breathe. Your children and your gr and grandchildren will be at the effect of climate catastrophe or nuclear catastrophe. The things that most threaten us threaten all of us regardless of our circumstances. Yes. And I think people are waking up to this. There's a beautiful line in A Course in Miracles that says, when you meet anyone, remember it is a holy encounter. And as you see him, you will see yourself. And as you treat him, you will treat yourself. I was talking off air to Dan, who's filming before, and we were talking about this line. I, was, I told him he came from A Course in Miracles. And I said, it doesn't matter who's sitting next to you. It can be the janitor or the 
Prime Minister, everyone is your teacher in some way or another. And if we take out looking at people as being special, everyone is special. How have you experienced well, that in your life? The Course of Miracles says all of the children of God are special and none of the children of God are special. Yeah. Everybody is Jesus in drag. Everybody is God <laughs> in drag. You don't know the soul of that janitor. Yeah. You don't know who you're talking to. You're thinking, well, that person's a janitor. That person is a child of God. Yeah. And that person, uh, f for all you know, plays Beethoven's Ninth. And, you know, you don't know. We're so arrogant in our perception that we look at the uh, material circumstances of a person and we think we know anything. Mm. So every, every situation, and I, you know, the quotes you've read are so eloquent, you know, it's so profoundly beautiful. Every, every encounter gives you an opportunity to hone the musculature of who you choose to be in this world. And it's all coming back to you. Mm. It's all coming back to you, um, including how you treated the janitor. Yeah. And I, I think... And the janitor might be the next prime minister. You don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, what do they say? Be nice to the people you meet on the way down because you're on the way up because you're going to meet them again on the way down? Well, that's true. That's mm -hmm. so true. <laughs> One thing that COVID taught us was how important we are to each other because when we weren't together, we missed that. Zoom was an amazing thing, wasn't it? Yeah. Zoom really... I, I don't think we're ever going back to as zoomless a world as we tended to be before. But it was also interesting, I thought, how I've noticed in some of my classes that there were probably some intimate conversations we had on Zoom that we wouldn't have had if it had been a big room full of people. Yeah. So I think we're all eager to get back and are excited. I know I'm even being here in Australia. This is my first time that I was able to come back out and have live events. That's wonderful. But I also experienced, as I know many people did, that Zoom was a Lifesaver. Yes, it was. It was an absolute <laughs> lifesaver. And I wonder for you now, Marianne, you've got some new courses that are coming yeah. out, which are really exciting, and you're always doing a lot of amazing work, but could you tell us a little bit about them? Thank you. Well, on September, I think, 9th and 10th, uh, I recently had my 70th birthday. So I am dealing, as is everybody really after the age of 50, really, yeah. with the whole idea of Chapter 3. Because centuries ago, people were winding down in a way now that might, you know, people might have two, three, four decades ahead of them. So this issue of how to consciously create, envision, and step into uh, chapter three is of interest to me. And I've always felt with my books, as well as my classes, I teach whatever it is I'm passionate about at the moment, you know. So that's going to be an online seminar that I'm going to do on um, the 9th and the 10th. And then also I'm going to do a six-week course where people have a class online again once a week, starting, I think, October 7th, maybe 9th, 7th or 9th. Um, this kind of just spiritual, let's go over the basics. You know, growing more evolved spiritually doesn't mean you grow more complicated. It means that the simple principles, which by now a lot of us already know because we've all read the same books and we've all listened to the same tapes, how to make them more universally applicable mm. to the circumstances of our lives. So it's a little bit of a spiritual boot camp. And I think things like that are really nice because I even know in my life, like I'm interviewing people who are so wise in the spiritual realm, that sometimes you just need to have that information be accessible to you when you need it, like online is perfect. And just sometimes it might be something's rattled you during the day and you can just listen to it and it just gives you a better way of looking at life than you may 
have had before. And I, I think those things are so unbelievably important, those courses. Well, I think also, you, you know, it's kind of like physical exercise. You never get to stop. Yes, you, you never, never get, get to, to the stop. point of saying, well, I like how my body looks, so I don't have to go to the gym mm. anymore. This stuff, the moment, you know, we have attitudinal muscles and they get flabby, just like your physical muscles do if you don't work, if you don't work them. And those attitudinal flabby muscles are cynicism, anger, negativity, victimhood, all those things that just tear us down. And when we fall down into those places within ourselves, then we perpetuate the circumstances that reflect those attitudes. So we always have to uh, to work it mm. on our consciousness, just like you work it on your, uh, with your physical muscles, whether it's yoga or gym or whatever. It's not just helpful, it's kind of imperative. Mm. Because if there's emotional gravity, there's spiritual gravity, there's psychological gravity, just like there's physical gravity. And at a certain age, if you're not working on keeping it up, it's headed down, you know? It's really interesting. I was watching a documentary the other night. It's Michael Pollan. I don't know if you've yeah, seen it. Great He's stuff. Done, yeah, yeah, really interesting. Wait, wait, which documentary are you talking on about? Though? Psychedelics, yeah. this recent one. Yeah. And I wondered what your thoughts were on this stuff because I remember I interviewed Rick Doblin. Uh huh. And he's great yeah, too. he's really interesting. Yeah, I and I, it was, I, I turned to my friend and I said, Wow, see, sometimes manifestations can take a long time to occur because he's been 30 years or something trying to get MDMA legalised to help a lot of people who have PTSD and um, other mental health issues. And the work he has done is profound. Absolutely. Yeah, I wondered what you thought about that stuff. Positive. Fan. Yeah. Good. I mean, look at my generation. Like, we need yes, that. Yes, yes. <laughs> and it's interesting as well, I suppose, as you were saying, there's a huge amount of money goes into the Americans as far as their um, army and navy and all that kind of stuff. So there's a huge amount of people that have PTSD in your country. Yes, and they are finding. We, we have had, um, it, it's been horrifying. We've had uh, one veteran committing suicide on the average of every hour. Hour? Every hour. So <gasps> we have been, you know, the work being done with um, psychedelics treating PTSD has yeah. been very, very helpful. And so very good. helpful. Mm -hmm. It's. I hope. I think Australia is not as forward as you guys are with that kind of stuff. But I thought, when you put that stuff in the right hands, it just, it really, it can do wondrous things to people that are suffering really badly. Yeah. Can you tell me what is the best advice that you have ever been given? Get over yourself. Get over yourself. It's not about you. Yeah. The best, the best. Who told you that? Me. I learned it the hard way, like everybody does. Yeah. This is not about you. This life is much bigger than you. Mm. Stop making it all about me. Don't do it. Just, just don't go there. The word, the word disciple and the word discipline come from the same root. The Course in Miracles says you achieve so little because you have an undisciplined mind. It says you are far too tolerant of mind wandering. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was driving up to a spiritual retreat center once, and there was a big sign, love yourself. And I thought, you know, Jesus did not come to the earth to say, love yourself. He said, love each other. Mm. Now, I do think that loving ourselves in a healthy, appropriate way is, is important and meaningful. But I will not find love for myself if I don't find love for you. This business, I have to love myself before I can love others, mm, not really. 
And if I love myself, it will be easier to love you. And if I love you, it'll be easier to love myself. This constant looking in on my on myself, as in my personality, my body, is is putting ourselves in a mental prison. In every situation where you see yourself as not turning inward for what I need or I want, my needs as I perceive them, but instead be there as a faucet that mm. that the water, you know, you I always say to people, you're the faucet, you're not the water. Just make your hands and feet available, make your mind available, make your heart available. You will get so much from that. Imagine that the universe is like a house that's wired for electricity. You're just a lamp. It doesn't matter the shape of the lamp, the form of the lamp, the color of the lamp, the size of the lamp. Plug in and with every thought that, you know, namaste consciousness. And then, you know, even like, look, you and me talking right now. So we're led to each other and we can do more together. This, you could do more with this interview because I'm sitting here. I could do more with this interview because you're sitting here. That's the name of the game. That's the zeitgeist, is trying to actualize ourselves to a point where we're playing a higher, more collaborative game with others. It's like the cells in the body. The highest actualization of the cell is collaboration with other cells mm. to serve the healthy functioning of the organ and the organism. And people are realizing that's where happiness comes from. The Course in Miracles says, you do not find yourself by looking to yourself, for that is not where you are. Mm. We find ourselves in relationship with other people. And, um, you know, not from figuring out what we didn't get in the past, but by being more focused on what we might give in the present. It's a, it's a conversion to a different worldview that's happening. And uh, so if there's one piece of advice, it's all the things that you and I have talked about. Wake up in the morning, don't forget to meditate. Blast everywhere you go with love before you go there. When you make a mistake, own it, give it to God. Say that you're willing to be a better person. Try to clean it up when you've made mistakes with people. Um, think about something much bigger than yourself. And, um, you know, none of us uh, are enlightened masters that I know, but um, most of us, I tell you, I, what I've seen over the last few years is a lot of people have been doing the kind of work that you and I are talking about. Mm. It, is a, it is in the zeitgeist. It is a buzz. I just think we need to realize the urgency of this moment, and most of us need to step it up a little bit. What's your favorite prayer? What you said before, where would you have me go? What would you have me do? What would you have me say and to whom? When I, um, when I say that in the morning, it, it puts you, it, it's a natural guidance system. It's spirituality, the voice of the Holy Spirit, the voice for God, whatever you want to call it, it's like radar. So if you say that in the morning, where would you have me go? What would you have me do? What would you have me say and to whom? It just puts you on a path rather than, I don't know, I don't know where to go. I don't, you know, you just, you evolve beyond all that and become clear and focused. What's your greatest hope for society today? Oh, the eradication of war, the repair of the environment, the bolstering of our democracies, the end of global poverty, mm. the amelioration of unnecessary human despair, the eradication of sickness, and that all sentient beings become happy. Mm. What is a life of greatness to you? If I, in any moment, am doing my best, mm. trying to be as impeccable as I can, trying to take care of business, trying to act in integrity, there doesn't have to be any more greatness than that. That's a great life. Mm. Just if in this moment you did your best, that, that's, that's good enough.
Marianne Williamson, thank you for being the beautiful teacher of love that you are and sharing your wisdom for all these years. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Right back at you. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.